Each year, it is my privilege to produce for you more than 200 Cato Daily podcasts featuring Cato scholars, outside experts, journalists, lawmakers, and others with interesting things to say. And at Cato, we accept no government money. We are entirely funded by private citizens and organizations. That means both Cato and the Cato Daily Podcast are completely dependent on your support. To keep the Cato Daily Podcast strong and growing, we've launched a new podcast sponsor program for this holiday season. Any and all donations to support the podcast are most appreciated, but at the $1,000 level of support, you'll become a Cato patron sponsor, which means you'll receive all the benefits of patron sponsorship. Additionally, unless you object, I'll personally thank you on the podcast. Cato is a 501c3 charitable organization, which means that your gift is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. To learn more, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 30th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. When Howard Root and his company were approached by federal prosecutors, it looked like a government shakedown. And then things got much worse. In his book, Cardiac Arrest, Five Heart-Stopping Years as a CEO on the Fed's Hit List, Howard Root details how the Feds threatened witnesses, misled grand juries, and strategically leaked secret documents. We spoke in November. What does your company do? So, yeah, we're a medical device company. Vascular Solutions develops cardiovascular medical devices. I started in 1997, working on one device that we launched in 2000, then launched three additional products in 2003, and for the next 10 years, launched between five and 10 new products each year to where uh, when this whole government mess started, we had over 50 products on the market, and last year we crossed 100 medical devices that we developed and launched. All right. So uh, you have to have some pretty intricate uh, dealings with uh, federal regulatory agencies when you take a product to market and you provide the indications for the product. First of all, detail, what, what, is, what is an indication for a product? Well, an indication, the FDA approves medical devices for sale, but they don't just approve the medical device. They approve the medical device for an indication. And that indication is the part of the anatomy that the physician is going to treat using the medical device. Now, the law requires that every medical device have an indication for use, a general indication for use. And in this case, it was for the treatment of varicose veins. But the FDA, under non-binding guidance, wants a device company to get approval for every specific indication that it can be used for. For example, the great saphenous vein or the short saphenous vein or for perforator veins. So there's what the law requires, and then there's actually what the FDA wants beyond that. And when you're in a heavily regulated industry like medical devices, if the FDA wants something, you say, yes, sir, as well as anyone else, you get it done if you can, because you want to make sure that you stay on the right side of the regulatory agency. So what uh, what led the government to decide that uh, vascular solutions uh, might be doing something wrong? Well, it, these always start with a uh, whistleblower or a relator. And under the civil statute, uh, some employee, ex-employee, a competitor, uh, angry spouse, anyone can make a complaint about a business that the business is engaged in some kind of fraud against the federal government. In this case, uh, a former employee who was uh, disgruntled, uh, who was money motivated because these whistleblowers get 25% of whatever the government ultimately recovers from the company, this uh, former employee made up a $20 million fable 
of conduct by the company in order for him to try to get $5 million to turn around his life. He sold that to the U.S. attorneys down in San Antonio because the way these lawsuits work, the the whistleblower starts the lawsuit, but then gives it to the U.S. attorneys. And if the U.S. attorneys intervene or pick it up, the uh, whistleblower doesn't have to do any more work, just waits for the check to arrive in the mail. And the government takes off from there. And that check uh, could be 20% of the proceeds of the case? Yeah, it's somewhere between 20 and 30%, I think generally around 25%. Sometimes these people are making hundreds of millions of dollars off of starting an allegation. In this case, our disgruntled former employee who uh, applied to be promoted, did not get the promotion, so he quit. His life was spiraling out of control downward. And uh, he was made up a $20 million fable to try to get about $5 million in, in, uh, in money from the company through the government. I would like to come back to that as a, as an incentive for people to try to bring these kinds of, of actions. But I, I understand that the the intention, of course, is is pure. That it is you want uh, people who are able to identify fraud to be able to uh, get something out of of uh, having reported it. So, uh, with respect to uh, your company, tell me how this this case sort of uh, unraveled. Well, so here's here's the problem with that whistleblower st- statute, the, the relator provision is the whistleblower makes the allegation and the U.S. attorneys who receive it do not go to the company and ask for an explanation. Instead, they spend, in this case, upwards of a year investigating that, uh, talking to the relator, looking at the documents that the relator provides to them, and making a decision whether they're going to prosecute this case. Now, they're getting all their information from one side, and then they decide to go forward. And in this case, they actually took it one step beyond that. They're instructed under the Yates memo, drafted by Sally Yates, to immediately look at every one of these whistleblower allegations as a potential criminal violation by the company and the CEO. So they take that in San Antonio at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Texas. And the civil lawyers in that division give it to the criminal prosecutors. And the criminal prosecutors in this case decided to go ahead and pursue this as a criminal investigation without ever talking to the company or anyone on the other side. So if the federal government is essentially obliged to look at all of these complaints uh, essentially in a non-adversarial way, that is, there's, there's not any attempt to um, understand more before making a decision uh, from the perspective of the potential um, defendant. And they're, fo- they're compelled to then look at these cases as both civil, civil and uh, potentially criminal issues. How did that play out in your case? Well, in our case, uh, they, the first thing that we received was a subpoena from the San Antonio U.S. Attorney's Office asking for all of our documents related to this one product that made up 0.1% of our sales and had never harmed a patient and had been uh, approved by the FDA or cleared by the FDA for sale on eight separate occasions. So that subpoena asked for all of our records and we immediately pulled those all together and, and gave them to the U.S. Attorney. And then the U.S. Attorney wanted to talk to some employees and they picked which employees they wanted to talk with. And I volunteered to sit down with the U.S. attorneys and talk with them, but they refused. They actually canceled the interview of me, and they wanted to pull together their own evidence. So they they never had us giving them the explanation of why this whistleblower allegation was all wrong. Instead, they pursued their investigation as if we were a criminal. 
So they start with the investigation by asking employees to sit down for voluntary interviews. And then after that, they start up with a grand jury proceeding and they start bringing people in front of the grand jury. And by now, they've already made the decision that this is a serious matter, looking at it just from the one perspective, never considering the alternative. And so then when the employees start start telling the U.S. attorneys in the grand jury proceedings or in those interviews that they have it all wrong, that they don't understand their, their, their facts are, are absolutely the opposite, the U.S. attorneys believe, the assistant U.S. attorneys believe that we are somehow um, – um, um, hiding everything, that we're, we're creating a, a, a smokescreen to throw them off their track. And these uh, prosecutors get very upset and start threatening the employees, saying, if you don't speak the truth, and in their case, the truth is whatever the government believes, we're going to, A, destroy your career, because they have the power of excluding the employee from health care under HHS administrative remedies, which means they can never work with or for or sell to a hospital that takes a Medicare patient, which means all these employees would have their careers in healthcare effectively terminated. Or B, we're going to indict you for perjury because we don't believe that what you're saying is the truth. And they actually did that to one of my employees because he wouldn't agree with the talking points that the prosecutors gave him. They indicted him for perjury, and he was scheduled to stand trial one man month after my trial. If he'd been convicted, he would have spent over 10 years in prison. So they, they start off on a one-sided view. Then they add the evidence and convince themselves that that's right. Then they view anyone who's got the opposite view as being a liar. And then they threaten them to try to get the evidence that they want. Some ways they're able to use the power of the federal government to convince these employees to say whatever the prosecutors want to say. And now they're even more firmly convinced that they're in the right, that we're in the wrong, that the company has committed a crime, and that myself, as the CEO, is the responsible corporate officer and should go to prison. And by that time, there's no way that you're going to get these prosecutors to change their mind. You're just going to have to beat them in court. And we realize that about three years into this process, we realize this thing is going to be a big problem, and we're going to have to actually fight a criminal prosecution and beat these, uh, these prosecutors in court. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves as this, as this case uh, proceeded, you as you noted, uh, this particular product was uh, never implicated in harming a patient. It represented a tiny fraction of sales uh, for your company. Uh, but they were claiming, the government was claiming essentially that um, there was uh, Medicare fraud here. Is that right? Well, not even Medicare fraud. What they were alleging was that our salespeople were talking about using this product for treating perforator varicose veins rather than saphenous varicose veins. Now, we had approval under the FDA uh, to treat var varicose veins generally, but we never had the specific indication to treat perforator varicose veins. Now, that was under the FDA's guidance document, not under the law. And so we instructed all of our sales reps to not talk about varicose veins in the perforator veins because that's what the FDA wanted us to do. But the prosecutors thought that a couple of our employees had, had spoken with doctors about treating perforator veins with this product, and they claimed that language turned this into a crime. Now, keep in mind, the doctor can treat any vein they want to. Uh, there's nothing illegal about that. We had approval to sell this product. Uh, this is not an allegation of any untruthful statements, just that our salespeople were talking about using it in a vein that the government considered to be off-label. And as you point out, 0.1% of our sales, not a single patient was ever hurt by this product 
used in any vein. Right. And the issue here is not whether or not doctors can use your products to treat a patient in a way that the FDA doesn't recognize. It's whether or not your salespeople were talking to doctors about using uh, these products in ways that the FDA doesn't recognize. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the doctors can use any medical device as they see fit. So the whole criminal prosecution, five years, 121 lawyers, $25 million, full jury trial, was over what words the, the salespeople said to doctors about a product that was legally used, almost never used, and never harmed a single patient. When you put it that way, you can't believe that this thing could get so out of control, but it's because of the way that it starts. It's because who they talk to and then the incentives within the system not to get to the truth, but to try to get an extraction of a conviction and now specifically trying to get the CEO held responsible for something that a sales rep might or might not have said. So how did this proceed then? Uh, you know, they they initially had uh, had suggested that uh, the what they could bring at trial was twenty million dollars worth of of claims uh, from uh, from the government, and um, so that was where, the where, did, where civil, did it end up? Yeah, that was the civil lawsuit. Was a whistleblower was doing twenty million dollars in claims, and then it bifurcated because the criminal investigators took the lead in this whole investigation, but there was still this civil lawsuit. Then a new attorney down in San Antonio took over the civil side, and he told our lawyers at that point in time that if he had been handling this case since the beginning, it would have been settled by then, that he was going to come back with a settlement offer that had fewer zeros in it. And he came back with an offer of a million dollars and said, you know, that's not my final salvo. And so at that point, I told my lawyers, well, look, we're not having to admit we did anything wrong. This is costing me a million dollars a quarter just to fight the civil lawsuit. So if you can settle this for a million dollars even, I'll sign that check. That's fine. Everyone does that every day. Not that we did anything wrong, just that's the right economic decision for the shareholders. So our lawyers negotiated it down to about $500,000. No admission that we done anything wrong, just a check. And we signed that and sent it in. And so that ended the civil lawsuit. But at that point in time, the criminal prosecution was already going forward, and that's the one that could potentially put me in prison. Or how did your trial proceed? So from there, we realized that we were going to go to trial unless the judge would kick it out. And so we brought a motion to dismiss the indictment because the, the prosecutors tampered with the evidence. And the judge not only dismissed that, he didn't even want to have a hearing on it. Uh, we had allegations that these prosecutors read grand jury testimony from one witness to another witness and said, your testimony has to correspond to this grand jury testimony. Judge didn't want to hear anything about that. They also made threats to our employees to change their testimony, and they distorted the entire record to the grand jury. Judge didn't want to hear anything about that. So you would not kick out the indictment because of the allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, which means we're going to, going to, uh, to trial. Uh, the trial was February of 2016. I was down in San Antonio. Uh, even though we're a public company, the board kept me in my seat as CEO, even though I was uh, an indicted defendant in this trial. Um, and we kept the company together, and actually our performance stayed strong. So we were one of the few public companies in America who's been able to fight through a criminal indictment without making any changes in the operation of the company, relying on the American concept of innocent until proven guilty and not having any punishment before the trial is over. We got down to the trial, and it started, and the prosecutors, quite honestly, were the worst litigators I've ever seen in a courtroom. 
the opening argument was horrible. It had no emotional appeal. It was hard to make any emotional appeal. We didn't make any money off this product. No one was hurt by this product. The jury couldn't understand why this was even a crime. Then they started calling their experts, their witnesses. They called one physician who said that this product was safe and effective, had never harmed anyone and helped many, and that this risk that the government thought about, a risk of a clinical complication, was purely fictional, never seen, and not something to worry about. Then they called an FDA witness, someone who currently worked in the FDA as the branch chief of the area that regulated varicose vein products. That witness said that this was not a violation of the law. This was an alleged violation of a non-binding guidance document that was not the law. And I still remember being in the courtroom where he admitted that on cross-examination. And, and we all thought we should just drop the mic and walk out of the courtroom. Because how can you be put in prison for a sales rep potentially violating a non-binding FDA guidance document? Their case was over. So it continued that pathway, and then we got exposure of all the threats that the prosecutors made to the witnesses. And at the end of them calling all their witnesses, we had a team meeting with the defense counsel and myself, and we decided that we weren't going to call any witnesses. We didn't need to call anyone to testify in our defense. We used the prosecution's witnesses to prove that we were innocent. We went right to the jury verdict. The jury came back unanimous, not guilty on all counts. And I was acquitted, the company was acquitted, and I went back to Minnesota to continue operating my medical device company. Even if someone were uh, interested in seeing CEOs go to jail out of uh, some sort of malice toward uh, corporate America, or were interested in making sure that, as I think many people are, uh, would be amenable to, making sure that people who are committing crimes, uh, who are harming others, do go to prison. The the sheer waste of resources here seems like a pretty big deal. Well, keep in mind that the government makes money prosecuting health care fraud. In fact, they boast in their press releases at the end of the, each year, they calculated a 610% return on investment in fighting health care fraud. Because when they make these allegations, companies just give money over. So they're making money off of this, which is obscene. That's not the concept of justice at all. But what they've done to us is they made us spend $25 million. They made us spend five years managing this while we're trying to develop medical devices. And they drove me out of the business. I mean, after it was all over, I went to my board of directors and said, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm 56 years old. I want to retire. Let's sell the company. So we sold the company this February, and I retired the day the sale closed. And now at 56, after developing 100 medical devices, creating this company from nothing up to a billion dollars in market value, I'm out of the medical device field. And keep in mind that they prosecuted me individually, not for something that I did. I never talked to doctors about this product. Not that I told someone to do, not anything that I told anyone to do. They never alleged that I told people to go out and talk about using it for perforator veins. In fact, my instructions were consistent with what the FDA wanted us to say under their non-binding guidance, which is do not talk about perforator veins when you're selling this product. They were prosecuting me as the responsible corporate officer, which said that if I had the power and authority to prevent or promptly correct the violation, I was guilty of the crime, even if I did not know that the act occurred. So I had 100 sales reps, and if one of them says a wrong word, and I have the power to correct that, which I do, then I would go to prison. 
And it's pretty easy when you realize that's the standard you're being held to, that you don't want that responsibility. I always say, if you don't realize what 100 salespeople are like, think 100 teenagers. It's really similar in their motivation. And if 100 teenagers say it's the wrong word, just one of those 100 in a year, you go to prison, you will not take that responsibility. That's obviously a, you know, a terrible standard of evidence to use in a, in a criminal trial, but there's also the problem here that it seems like there was a lot of motivated reasoning going on. There, there was. And the, the wonderful thing about our case is that it went all the way through to a jury verdict, and the government called their investigator to take the stand at the last witness in the trial. So George Scavdis was the FDA special agent who was investigating me for upwards of five years. I mean, this guy takes his job very seriously. He carries a gun because guys like me are real dangerous. And he acts like we are the evil people in America. And he got up and st on the stand, and he was so eager to explain why he investigated this case, why he went after me, and why he thought I was a bad guy. And so we asked him, when you were investigating these witnesses— and talking to these witnesses, why didn't you present the other side? Why didn't you ask them to read the FDA clearance document and explain whether this was cleared or not under the law? And he said, when I'm interviewing these witnesses, I'm not there to make the defense's case for them. And then we asked him, but Mr. Scavdis, you're a federal law enforcement officer, isn't that right? He said, yes. And we asked him, your job is to find the truth and the whole truth, is it not? And he answered, I'm a fact finder. He would not admit that his job is to find the truth. He thought his job was to find the facts. And when you put it that way, the only question is what facts did he want to find? And these prosecutors and investigators in the Department of Justice are motivated and rewarded for finding facts that cause convictions, particularly of people like me, CEOs of public companies. That's their motivation. That's their cause. And so they ignore all the other evidence. They focus on that one thing. They get tunnel vision. And then they get blindsided when at trial, the whole thing blows up on them. But for an investigator in the federal government to not say that his job is to find the truth, that that person should be fired or retrained, because there's just no excuse for that. The power of prosecutors in America is almost unlimited. It's been unlimited for years. And everyone in America commits a crime virtually every day. So the question is, what criminals are the prosecutors going to prosecute? They can pick anyone in America. And if they're looking at it based on who you are versus what you did, now we have a system that's really tough to live in. I mean, it's one where you want to stay away from any responsibility. You want to put your head low. You want to just pull without society. And that's what I've done. I've sold my business and got out because I just don't want that responsibility of being a CEO responsible on a criminal basis for strict liability statements by sales reps. How much of this is partisan? Because I imagine the people on the left or right have different ideas about who ought to be in prison based on, well, let's say less than clear evidence. But yeah. is there a partisan element to this? There's a partisan element to it. It, it does cut both ways. Um, and it's not that Department of Justice is pure. Uh, and, and when there's one administration and impure when it's a different administration. Um, there's a joke I heard that, uh, and it's probably true, it's actually probably not a joke, that the Department of Justice prides itself as being the least political organization in Washington, D.C., and anyone who knows it knows that it's the most political organization in Washington, D.C. They get to pick who they go after. 
Uh, this was all done under the Obama administration. Obviously, the Yates memo was written under the Eric Holder regime. Uh, Eric Holder was even on a panel that I saw, and I was on the giving a talk right after him, where he said that the Yates memo wasn't what they believed. It wasn't that every investigation should be criminal in nature and should go after the CEO. But he, he didn't really understand why Sally Yates wrote it that way. But even so, it was something that, you know, they just had there, but they just dealt with it as it came up. And, and there's been a number of these types of prosecutions. They went after FedEx for being a drug runner and a money launderer because allegedly FedEx was picking up packages from Internet pharmacies without checking whether the, the uh, recipient had a uh, prescription for those drugs. A crazy trial. It went, on, well, actual, went into trial, and after a couple of weeks, the government just quit, walked away. I mean, these cases, my case and the FedEx case and a lot of other ones, are essentially judicial plane crashes. These are prosecutions that went awry for some reason. Someone was motivated by the wrong reason. Someone had some kind of uh, tunnel vision. Something was just not about justice. And yet after each one of these prosecutions, we never hear of the Department of Justice sending in a team trying to figure out what went wrong so they can correct it so it doesn't happen the next time. They're never interested in figuring out their mistakes. All they're interested in is crowing about their victories, and their victories are partisan based on their own beliefs. Uh, in the last eight years, it's been that business is bad and that there's a lot of health care fraud, and so we need to go and get those responsible people thrown in prison. Uh, banks got it as well. They said that they want the CEOs of the big banks to get put in prison over what happened in 2008. So there's always a start with who they're going to get, and then they go try to find the crime. It's not find the crime and then find the responsible person. First, find the target, and then find a crime that you can put them behind bars. Howard Root is author of Cardiac Arrest, Five Heart-Stopping Years as a CEO on the Fed's Hit List. Here we are at the cusp of 2018, and I'd like to ask you to consider supporting the Cato Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by joining our podcast sponsor program. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.